Factor, Art Bolin achieved four British number ones, three number one LPs, with record sales topping 60,000 a day. He lived the iconic rock and roll dream, constantly evolving on the journey from teenage mod pinup to rock god, idol to millions. I'm your toy, your twist, and your Become a friend of CITR and get great discounts on Commercial Drive and in other areas at Bone Rattle Music, High Life Records, People's Co-op Bookstore, Audio Pile Records, Bad Bird Media, Bam Merch Canada, and the Vancouver Music Gallery. Wow, it sure does pay to be a friend of CITR. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or go online to www.citr.ca. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me, for sure. You are listening to the Terry Project. Terry Project. The Terry Project. Terry Project podcast from CITR. CITR 101.9 FM. Here at UBC. The University of British Columbia. In Vancouver. To find out more, even more, about the Terry Project, visit our website at terry.ubc.ca. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My one big idea. It's priceless. What can be better than that? Hey, this is Gordon calling back. Gordon, I'm outside. This is the perfect time. My question for you first, before I even get you to introduce yourself, do you want to be introduced by name or do you want a pseudonym? Like, how sensitive is this? Um, well, do I want to have the soundbite attached to my name? Um, no, there's, I don't see any benefit to that whatsoever. So maybe we'll call you um, Doug. Okay. <laughs> How do you like that for an alter ego? I usually I usually go with Scott Walker. All right. Scott, Scott Walker is, is my internet alias. <laughs> We had a few thousand listens last year, but I think most of them were from my mom. You might say we never really took off. So somebody told me to talk to this guy. I am a digital web and social media consultant, and I help brands, companies, and organizations improve uh, their visibility and the awareness of themselves online. What we try to do is use people within the organization, their friends and family, as well as other synthetic means of getting the ball rolling, so to speak. So, Wait, synthetic? So if you call it synthetic. What do you um, mean by that? There are uh, ways to purchase and increase the number of followers, fans, likes, and comments on just about all types of digital media. You can buy Twitter followers, right? Sure. Um, can you buy Instagram likes? Yes. What about iTunes votes? You can buy iTunes votes. 
and YouTube views? Absolutely. I can buy people liking my fan page on Facebook. Absolutely. Can I buy them liking individual posts on my wall? Yes, absolutely. Can I buy shares? Can I buy people clicking the share button? You can. <laughs> can I pay someone to say that my program is the future of radio journalism? Absolutely. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. That uh, awkward opening tells you that we are live in studio. It's uh, Sam Fenn, one of the hosts of and, the Terry Project. And this is Chirag Mahajan, the produce, technical producer of the show. CJ the DJ. Thank you. And we decided to take uh, a different... Uh, I mean, we tried to do something different on the show today and s instead of giving you uh, a pre-recorded... A uh, brilliant documentary like we do all the time. We uh, decided to do a live mid-season recap show to give you the best of uh, some of the clips from our third season so far. Why we do that, CJ? Because we've had an exciting time. We've interviewed some very, very interesting people who have said some shocking things, some enlightening things, and some boring things, which, <laughs> which we have to choose to either place in our documentaries or edit out. Edit out. And we normally opt to edit those things out. Yes. The other reason why we're doing this is because uh, it takes a long time and it's hard to make documentary radio shows, and uh, we just don't have a documentary done for today. That is true. <laughs> uh, but we do have some exciting stuff lined up. So the reason we started the program with uh, the interview with quote-unquote Scott Walker is not his real name obviously was because we wanted to ask him what is it possible to buy likes and shares and all kinds of other weird things that people do on the internet these days and he said yes absolutely you can buy your way into popularity right and I and I, the reason we started there this term that was the first the clip we played at the beginning of this show is actually the, the first clip we played all year um, and and we started there with a kind of um, meditation on popularity because um, our show was less popular at that point than it is now. So I just want to thank everybody for listening. It's been a, a great first term. And hopefully, if you haven't heard some of these clips that we're going to play for you, uh, maybe they're the impetus for you to go back into our back catalog and check out some of those great documentaries. Absolutely. And so, we, Sam, we started off the third season with rebranding. And we, the first one of the first uh, people we focused on was a guy named Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks. Yes. Yeah. What can you tell the people about Garth Brooks? Well, for for a little while in the 1990s, Garth Brooks was by far the most popular and famous um, recording artist in the world. You know, he was outselling uh, the Beatles in their prime. And, um, you know, you know, most of the listeners probably have heard some of his songs. Friends in Low Places was his biggest hit. And essentially what he was was he was like a pop country singer. Um, and then he made a sort of strange decision at the height of his popularity to develop an alter ego. Interesting. And we, we got to talk to an interesting essayist, I guess, about... Chris Gaines and Garth Brooks? Yeah, I guess as uh, the pop culture critic Chuck Klosterman um, talked to us. He's an author of several books, including... In, including um, an essay about Chris Gaines. Fair enough. I, that one's called Eating the Dinosaur. It's in, in, part of, in part of his compilation of essays called Eating the Dinosaur. Um, 
Yeah, and Chuck Chuck is great. He's really fun. So so what we're going to do is we're going to seamlessly transition into a clip of Chuck Klosterman talking about the recording artist Chris Gaines. So, you know, Gus Brooks initially in his career, uh, one assumes what they saw is who he was, that this is the kind of person he was presenting. But once you decide to become inauthentic on purpose, it is almost as if you are saying, this is what I think the people who like me somehow want. Like, they don't know they want it yet. They'll know it when they see it. But in a, in a sense, when someone tries to create an alter ego uh, with a commercial purpose, it is almost as if they are saying, I understand something about my audience that they don't understand. This is the whole, you know, this is the problem with the idea of branding. That once you openly admit that you are a brand, it's going to feel cold.
five. Sam, your opinions? Well, I mean, yeah. So, so the the context of that conversation is basically that that the two, both experts agreed that the the DSM five or or the DSM that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Um, it's a sort of uh, um, reference book, a medical reference book, full of all the personality and mental disorders. Um, that it that psychiatrists and psychologists have developed ha- have a sort of weird fetishism of labeling everything as a mental disorder. You know, one of the more controversial ones is uh, selective mutism. What do you think selective mutism is? I guess people are mute to certain conversations and not to others. <laughs> well, yeah, it's usually diagnosed in children, and the idea is that um, sometimes the child. Um, has a reluctancy to speak, which, you know, there's, there's another word for that. You just call it shyness, right? And so, so there's been a lot of criticism um, of the DSM along those grounds. So, but anyway, this conversation, we, we put it together because we were doing this documentary about this young woman named Emily who's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And um, yeah, we, we have a couple clips we can play of that. And maybe we should start first with Emily last year um, struggled with self-harm and suicide. And she, she had a number of suicide attempts. But she authentically wants to get better, wants to be happy, wants to live. And so she, in one of her kind of low points, she checks herself into a sort of um, emergency mental health um, clinic. And yeah, here's her describing that experience. All I want is help. I don't get why no one will help. I've been going through a really, really rough couple of years. Um, I tried to commit suicide three times this year, but no matter how many times I go to the doctors, no matter how many times I go to the emergency room, I just won't get helped. I think the scariest situation was a couple months ago, I went to Lionsgate Hospital. I was feeling extremely down and I just knew that I needed help. Um, otherwise that I was probably going to hurt myself. So I went in there. Um, I went to the emergency room. I went to see nurse and I say, I feel um, I have a history of mental illnesses and I feel like I'm going to jeopardize my safety. I need help. Uh, I was very rudely told to sit down. I waited two hours before someone spoke to me. They brought me to a room. I explained my situation and uh, the nurse asked me, are you going to kill yourself? Well, I, I go, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I feel like I'm, I am going to hurt myself. And they're like, but are you going to kill yourself? And I say, I don't know. I cannot predict the future. All I can tell you is I'm not in the right state of mind to be by myself at this point. The nurse leaves. I wait in the room, comes back a little bit, and they say, well, we're currently only taking people that are going to be killing themselves. So if you feel like you're going to kill yourself, feel free to come back. So basically, I was told I wasn't suicidal enough. And and this is this is a hospital that just got I believe it was like ten million dollars to be put towards their mental health department. That got completely redone. They've got like a brand new building with twenty six rooms and all that. But when I try to go get help, I'm turned away. 
whether I'm turned away at the hospital for not being suicidal enough, turned away from psychiatrists saying that they're not willing to see me, turned away from everybody. It's, it's like they're saying they give up on me when I'm trying so hard not to give up on myself. But they've given up on me. Why haven't I given up yet? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so that's a, a clip from our documentary, um, Emily's Diary, which you can go back and check out um, on terry.ubc.ca and click on the podcast category. So she, so she is, uh, has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Although in her childhood, as uh, she'll mention in the next clip, she was diagnosed with several more disorders or misdiagnosed, some would say. And so that really speaks to the previous clip about the DSM-5, where a lot of the time psychologists are essentially looking to fill a checklist, but not truly understand the situation of a person. Yeah, one of the big themes in this episode is just kind of the power that doctors and psychiatrists um, hold over Emily. And uh, the the medication she's been on uh, for her whole life kind of defines her and she really wants to get off of it but she needs the assistance of all these medical professionals in order to do it and so the um, gaining access is uh, a real struggle for her um, yeah so why don't we why don't we listen to a short conversation she had with her mother about um, about healthcare in Canada is this working yeah it is there you go so how did I end up getting on medication at the age of eight I went to see my dad in France for a month, and then when I came back, he had a lot of anxiety. We went to see a pediatrician who suggested that it was good for you to see a psychiatrist and uh, to have a consultation. Um, nevertheless, I didn't do it because I thought that you were too young uh, to do that, and I was thinking that you might, you know, get better. And uh, you were getting worse and worse. So I um, went to see the doctor at that time, Dr. Good. Uh, I don't remember which doctor. Dr. Lim. No, it was, you were referred to Dr. Lim. The psychiatrist. Yeah, the psychiatrist. And then Dr. Lim um, gave you some medication to help you to cope with anxiety. And she also uh, said that she needed to have uh, some medication to cope with uh, uh, well, she didn't say bi bipolar at that time, but she thought that you might be bipolar, so you need to have something. She like. thought I was bipolar at that age? Yeah, she thought she, you might be bipolar. Yeah. At the age of eight? At the age of eight. So you had this uh, medication that you were putting under your tongue to... Yeah, Ativan. But how did you feel about putting an eight-year-old on Ativan? Well, I, I thought it was wrong. So why did you continue giving it to me? So we changed psychiatrist. We went to see another one, who was Dr. Rahman. Oh, I uh, remember him. Thinking that to have a second opinion, and Dr. Rahman confirmed uh, what Dr. Lim said and said that he was thinking that you were bipolar. Um, I know you went also to see one in West Vancouver. Oh, yeah, that Asian one. He was, yeah. um, oh, God, I, I can't remember. He told me that I had ADHD. And I was bipolar. And on top of that, I had a PTSD. So he just added on 20 more things. So you went to see this one, and basically n nothing worked. Nothing, nothing worked. And uh, actually, you were getting worse and worse and worse. When I would see Dr. Ramon um, and Dr. Lim, but mostly Dr. Ramon, because I saw him for, long, for quite a while, 
um, I would go into the office. He would just say, okay, how's your medication for working for you? Remember, it'd be like 15 minutes. I'd be in and out. I'd be like, But oh. I have something to say compared to my country, and I think it's very important to mention that. And, and this is my warning that my mom's going to go on a rant now about how she doesn't like Canadian's healthcare system. No, it's when you go to see a doctor, the only thing that it's so you wait for a certain period of time in the waiting room. Then you wait again in their little room. And they come and they have the pad ready, what you want, what you need. They don't ask you how you're feeling, why you're here. The system here, they just put a Band-Aid, but they don't want to know what you have. They don't want to search or to research what you have. That's my two cents. I know, I agree. Anyway. All right, well, I'm going to have to upload this now. But thank you for letting us know. (laughs) Yeah, so that's uh, that's a clip from our Emily Diaries episode. Um, that Re- really powerful. And uh, when I was editing this, it it really stung several points in my heart to listen to her say all that and listen to her mother say all that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, very one of our most emotional episodes. Definitely, um, and also probably our our most difficult episode to make. Wouldn't you say? Yes, it- I mean because of course. Uh, so let, let's 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 talk a bit about the radio diary format because yeah. this goes into the why it was so hard to edit. So tell us a bit about what radio diaries are, Sam. So basically, the way we made this is we we put out sort of a call for um, people who are struggling with mental illness or access to medical um, medical health resources, um, and we we asked people to basically take a recorder. Um, carry it around with them everywhere they go, and produce their own radio show. So um, that's what Emily did. We gave her a small recorder, and she probably recorded 13 hours worth of worth of tape, all sorts of different things, her talking to her friend, her talking to her mother, um, lots of stuff. And uh, ultimately, we gave her some feedback on what she did, but only very... Uh, a very small amount of feedback and then and then we edited it together into a kind of coherent narrative or we tried to make it a coherent narrative but that was really really hard because you know one of the things we do in our show is we'll go out and we'll gather clips like you get a uh, a good two-minute clip later in the show you hear um, we we go with some young teenagers into a Dairy Queen where they're trying to proselytize and evangelize to the the people in Dairy Queen so you'd go and you'd record that and then after you record it, um, you would put it in a, a radio documentary. You decide the part you liked and put it in. But then you would write a sort of transition to, to tell your audience what's going on. And you don't have that ability in a radio diary because we wanted we didn't want to have Gordon or my voice intervening at any point. True, because that sort of disrupts the, the sympathetic aspect of the radio documentaries where you really want your listener to be fully engaged with the, so the deepest... The most emotional parts of, you know, the the person who's recording, and and I I'd say many people who listen to the Emily Radio Diary uh, did feel like that. Absolutely, but but one of the things I was aware of when we were making the documentary is how much narrative power uh, we had, you and I and Gordon, when over that story that we really we chose which clips we thought were relevant, and then we chose which order. We thought the clip should go in to tell the sort of story we wanted to tell, and then we put them together, 
And what feels weird about doing that is that um, because our voices aren't coming in and explaining things to the audience, I think that listeners, um, maybe correct, correct me if I'm wrong or if you think I'm being too paranoid, but my fear is that the listeners think that we didn't have anything to do with it. You know, that it's that Emily t- chose completely 100% how to tell that story. Um, but yes, I mean, in some ways we did have production control, but I'd really applaud Emily on her ability to record in such a... Uh, she she really gave it her best. I and mean, she, she said what she wanted to say, and she described things in her life that she felt were wrong mm-hmm. or at the same time positive. And... She, I've really applauded her for some for some of the little things in in in, in the recordings, like having um, the music in the background or having different um, you know transitions that she herself sort of naturally uh, put into the recordings. And it was it was brilliant as as a person who's been doing this for a long time to have somebody give you her audio that she's never done before. So yeah, she was great. Um, and she's funny too. Like in the in the first clip, I mean, it's a very dark type of humor. But when she says like we're only going to be accepting people who are going to be killing themselves, um, that's a funny line. She's you know, and she knows it. She, True. And even though it was one of the darkest times of her life, she she knew how to make light of it. Um, and and it's it's tough to be in that situation. I couldn't imagine myself being in that situation. And it it just speaks to how much the mental the state of mental health uh, in Canada needs to change, uh, and I'm not—I'm sure not just in Canada, even in America. Yeah. So these are just systems that, uh, for a long time, have fallen into that that spiral of immediate assistance and not like preventive assistance. You know. Yeah. Well, doing this radio diary was difficult, so I called uh, a guy named Joe Richmond. Um, and and asked him some questions about it. He's a he does radio diaries for NPR, and he's really really good. So why don't actually first we're gonna go to a commercial break here on CITR 101.9 FM, um, www.citr.ca, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna play some of my interview with Joe Richmond. Back right. in a minute. You are listening to the Terry Project. Terry Project. The Terry Project. Terry Project podcast from CITR. CITR 101.9 FM. Here at UBC. The University of British Columbia. In Vancouver. To find out more, even more, about the Terry Project, visit our website at terry.ubc.ca. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My one big idea is priceless. What can be better than that? Listen, if they're so hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never play them, babe. At CITR, our hosts choose the music they play. That means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers, as opposed to focus groups. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts, get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine, or go online to citr.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? How much do you know about bikes? 
Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished guaranteed used bicycle or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen and then get riding. Join CITR's Nardwar the Human Serviette live as he talks and plays interview clips from his audio and video vault. The event is free and takes place on Friday, January 17th from noon to 2 p.m. in room 212A of the AMS Student Union Building at UBC. For more information, visit citr.ca or nardwar.com. Bless up, Nardwar! Welcome back. We on? Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9. And as I mentioned before, that little screw-up proves definitively that we are live at CITR. That's right. You can also listen to us on CITR.ca. And, of course, subscribe to our podcast to get more, to get all the entirety of these clips uh, and their episodes uh, on iTunes and terry.ubc.ca. CJ, I have a question for you. Tell me. On the Terry Project, you're usually lurking in the shadows. You're sort of a um, you know, mysterious figure editing clips together. That's right. Late at night, three in the morning. Reading That's the, what I do. Reading the credits at the end of the episode. That's right. How does it feel to be addressing the Terry Project listeners? Uh, it feels great, as a matter of fact. I mean, I, I am used to being on the air quite often here on CITR. So uh, what I do with the Terry Project is sort of my alter ego. But interestingly... There are probably a lot of Terry Project listeners who have not heard your voice. That's true. And uh, I guess they're listening to it right now. That's right. They're looking behind the curtain behind at the, the curtain. mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and the mastermind who sort of uh, does away with all the bullshit on... Sorry, can I say that? I guess I can say that. <laughs> all the BS uh, on our clips and the boring side of things, you know, the hums and the uhs and the and the buzzes and the electro noises and that's what I do do away with to make it sound great for our listeners. That's right, you do battle against bullshit. That's right. And speaking of BS, uh, Joe Richmond had something to say about it. What did he have to say about it? Well, this is a clip, so just to set it up one more time, Joe Richmond is a NPR um, radio reporter and Gordon and I are, uh, you know, radio geeks and we like NPR, we like Joe Richmond. So I called him and asked him about making radio diaries and, um, and but, you know, before the break, I was, I was sort of mentioning to you, CJ, my concern about um, the politics of representation and whether or not it, it's appropriate to kind of edit out all of the reporting and all the production process from your story itself. Um, and then it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Joe Richmond makes Radio Diaries for a living, so I just asked him about it. I asked him um, what he thought about that, about editing out 
the uh, the reporter. So why don't we go to that clip right now of that conversation? It, it seems like like journalism is becoming like you know most more postmodern, more transparent. The reporting is you know the process of reporting is becoming part of the story more frequently. Um, do you do you ever worry that be, you know by eliminating a lot of the process from the end product that that the, the the diaries could appear like this deceptively true or something like that. Hmm. Well, you know, I I I love stories that identify the reporter there. You know, that that like that that acknowledge they acknowledge the reporter there, and that like, and I think we are in a in a time where the reporter or the you know the the journalist. You know, it's part of the story, or at least acknowledged. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. Um, You know, for me, it's the diaries are about just making a direct link between the person and the listener, Mm -hmm. and I just want them talking directly. And I think that that's you know, it's it's one of the things that radio does so well. You know, create that one to one connection. So, you know, I. I think as far as the honesty of the story or of the character, mm-hmm. that comes from the fact that you record 30, 40 more hours of tape and you just, me at the producer, I can have, you know, enough of a bullshit detector to know what's really them, what's not them, what feels more authentic, what isn't, and that's, just, that's my job. So but, in a, in a know, way, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just just in the end, by having so much material you have an opportunity anyway. It may not always work, but you have an opportunity to create something so much more honest because you have that much more, more of a life to work with more, you know, time and material to work with. So just like any other reporter, then part, part of your exercise would be to actually kind of, um, know the person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, you know them through the tape, you know them. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't work if you don't have some sort of connection and relationship with them. It just doesn't work because, they're recording in a sense they're in a sense they're talking to me yeah so what do you think about that cj the the idea that the reporter should have a kind of a bullshit detector and the, and that's how you get to real truth in radio True. Is, is that the the reporter sort of susses out what he believes he or she believes to be kind of real and authentic and then represents that vision in the radio diary yeah, I guess in, in, in this context, he's talking about radio reporters, and that is significantly more important than, a, I guess, a print reporter in the sense that you have to consciously listen to the tape over and over again to recognize the authenticity of a person on the recordings. And that's that's a really hard task to do sometimes because um, it's not always that uh, truth or, or secrets come out or are revealed or not revealed on tape because you're not visually looking at a person. You're you're um, trying to recollect a recording in your head. And so you have to recognize that just... You have to focus on what you want to, you know, what you want the story, story to be, basically. The other thing he touched on in there is how kind of intimate the experience of True. of listening to radio is, especially when you're not listening to somebody like you and me who's who's coming in and... And, um, you know, speaking with a kind of radio authority voice, but instead you're listening to a regular person just sort of sharing things about themselves with you. When you were going through all that tape, um, Emily's tape, did you did you feel, really feel like you were getting to know her? 
Um, I I would say yes. It, it, in a weird way, it, it definitely, uh, definitely not. I, I would not as her psychiatrist or anything, mm-hmm. but as a, a bystander from a third party perspective, know her at least in the sense that I'd get to understand her behavior. I'd understand her emotions. Probably not understand um, her past because that is something really hard to comprehend. Uh, but definitely understand her emotionally, mentally as a person. So let's stay on this sort of self-referential talking about the process of making radio thing that we're doing right now. Um, do we have any clips of us speaking with radio producers? We do, in fact. We have um, an interview we did with Ira ba- Basin. Mm-hmm. And uh, who who is Ira Basin? He's a CBC radio producer. There you he, go. He produces stuff for um, Morning Edition, I think, sometimes. And uh, dispatches is that a show? But he, he he's basically he does what we do, but he makes more money right. doing. <laughs> <laughs> and he he had something to say about PR people, public relations, and media relations, and what the truth is and what the truth isn't. So here he is, Ira Basin from CBC. One of the interesting things that that I heard you said about the PR industry is their very strange conception of truth. So it's almost a postmodern or like subjective view uh, of a liquid truth rather than a solid right. truth. Like, what is the difference between the way that a, a journalist understands truth and a public relations person understands truth? Well, I mean, I asked um, this big shot uh, PR guy in um, in uh, New York. Uh, I, I was interviewing him, and I, and I I said, uh, "Do PR people tell the truth?" And I thought he would say, "Well, of course we do." Blah blah blah. And, and he said, "Well." You know, it depends on what you mean by truth. He said, I, I see truth as being 15% fact and 85% perception. And um, and that's what PR does, is, is PR kind of operates in the in the realm of the perception, right? The the um, and, and in fact, one of the sort of um, descriptions that I've come across is of PR is that they're perception managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you think about it that way, I mean, it's sort of true that... that um, there is, you know, a, a, you know, in most situations, a, a core kind of element of fact, and then there's a a wild, uh, a wide kind of range of of perception of how those facts can be interpreted, and that's really what the the um, uh, that's really what's up uh, up for grabs, right? Is the way that those facts are going to be interpreted. That's what spin is, you know. Mm-hmm. William Sapphire described as the del- deliberate shading of news perception. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, and so you you know so that that's truth is there's not an absolute truth as William James you know the philosopher said you know the truth happens to an idea right like you have an idea and, and basically if it if it if you can sell it in in the marketplace um, of ideas then then it becomes a truth um, and journalists you know tend not to operate that way because we you know kind of deal we we like to to sort of deal with with in, in the fact based realm but you know when we when you sort of go outside of that that fact based realm then then um uh you know that's where you get into the world of perception and and um and it's sort of up for grabs yeah so that that's a great clip by Ira Basin i, th- I you know, the funny thing, he's talking about how these these PR um, people, they use this kind of postmodern 
um, idea of truth and social constructivism and these kind of things that, I, you know, I'm generally pretty sympathetic to just to obfuscate and um, weasel their way out of responsibility for what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it seems, don't you think, like, there's a real theme through a lot of the episodes we made this term about truth, actually, and access to information. That is true. We, because truth is something we find hard to, A, either believe when it, it presents itself, or B, never are able to find it, hmm. regardless of where it is in society. Well, yeah, and I think the, the, it all comes down to essentially sources. Yeah. Like, f- for journalists, you get access to certain types of sources, and then, and that's where, and sometimes, you know, the, the sources you have access to and the ones you don't are kind of, um, are, are, have to do with power. You know, there are some things that powerful people don't want you to know about. And then they um, they try to keep information from you, and and that was, you know, we explored that idea in an episode we did called "Silencing the Scientists." CJ, what was that episode about? So essentially, it started off with you attempting to interview uh, a federal scientist named David Tarasik. Yeah, and uh, he, of course, told you that he'd have to inform the Canadian government's media relations department. And who, in turn, took forever uh, to get back to you. Your deadline passed. And this was, of course, not only happened to you, but as the case, uh, it, 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 it's been clear that it's been happening to several journalists, both in Canada and in America, who have been trying to contact federal scientists. So we, we set out to kind of answer the question, is the Canadian government intentionally silencing scientists? Are they muzzling their own scientists? Yes. So why don't we go to a clip from that episode? This was by far our most popular episode. Yes. And so this clip is uh, features Peter Ross and mm-hmm. Vince Pallas, who are both ex-scientists now. They work for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they rec- they describe how the Harper government uh, was responsible for dismantling and uh, terminating uh, entire offices and teams of researchers and scientists. Right. So here is Vince Pallas and Peter Ross. And now the federal government has has zero federal scientists monitoring pollutants, contaminants in those oceans. Is that is that right? Uh, we have three oceans, 209,000 kilometers of coastline. We had 55 staff within Fisheries and Oceans Canada that were tasked with uh, looking at all manner of uh, ocean pollution and 100% of those staff were terminated. What's at stake here? What, what are we really losing? If no one is monitoring the ocean, what do you foresee potentially happening? Canada is a land of water, whether that's fresh water, where we have 30% of the world's supply, or uh, our marine environment, where we, we border on three separate oceans. I think what is at stake is uh, the, the, the very nature of who we are as a people. Uh, water is fundamentally important to uh, Canadian culture. Uh, it's fundamentally important to healthy foods. It's fundamentally important to uh, uh, the safety and well-being of uh, numerous economic sectors. Uh, I think this decision to cut a very modest program uh, spells a very troubling future for Canadian scientific capacity uh, and our ability to manage our environment 
just as a at a time when uh, Canada and the world face potentially cataclysmic changes associated with uh, greenhouse gases and, and climate change. Peter's no longer working at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. His student JP is looking for a place to do his doctorate and is maybe thinking Europe. I asked Vince if he would go back if the job was offered to him, and he told me no. You know, I've seen many of my other colleagues um, go from the federal government system now into academia. Some of them have gone into consulting. Uh, some of them have dropped out of, of science altogether and, and moved on to other endeavors. Most of us have found homes elsewhere. I know of an, another colleague who's working in, uh, in the university environment. And I think if you asked him the same thing, you know, would you... Would you go back to DFO if we opened up the lab and allowed you to, to come back to your old job and, and continue the work that you were doing? I think you would refuse as well. There's a real, real distaste in, in, or a really bad taste in all of our mouths about that experience. We, we did our best on a daily basis to, to provide good, sound science published in really high-quality, peer-reviewed journals. And the end of that whole relationship just... There was, there was no appreciation for the kind of work that we did. And even worse, I think, there was no appreciation for the kind of, of training that the federal government put into us. You know, they, they spent a lot of time, they spent a lot of money getting a person from a new graduate of the university program to a high-level functioning research scientist who's directing um, applicable research and to just dump that without any, any acknowledgement that that uh, capacity will be lost and lost forever, I think was, uh, was tragic. So it's pretty affecting stuff, as you can hear. And, uh, and people really responded to this episode. Um, it was uh, boingboing.net, a popular blog, posted it. And then from there, at Uranon News, the sort of... Um, Twitter account associated with Anonymous, the internet vigilantes, um, tweeted it out. And then, you know, Canadians, and not just Canadians, but people who feel like Canada has a, a responsibility to um, protect the world, really, in terms of its em emissions and its role in, in climate change. And, and also, as Peter Ross mentioned, 30% of the world's fresh water, is, that's a lot of water for one country to be responsible for and and no longer be responsible for because exactly. they've completely disinvested in the funding of it. So we need to, to hurry along so we can't linger on this on the science too much. Um, my favorite episode we made this year was an episode about a, a Pentecostal youth rally called History Maker in Chilliwack, BC. Um, and and we'll just play a clip. I don't think this one needs much setting up. Um, this is a clip from the youth rally in Chilliwack. Every night at History Maker, there's a kind of big finale, a worship concert and a sermon. But during the day, there's workshops. One of those was an evangelizing workshop. We met with a few kids who were preparing to give out Bibles to people at surrounding malls. You lead off, darling. Okay. And then I'll close. Sounds good. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this totally, totally awesome day, God. Thank you for this amazing opportunity we're getting, God. I pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us the words to say. I pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us courage. 
I pray, God, that you would um, you would strengthen us and lead us in your way, and that we would not be about our agenda, but we would be about yours, God. I pray, Lord Jesus, we would put you first, and everything that you want to happen through us will happen. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have gone before us. Yes, Father. That you are watching over us and that we are not going out alone. Lord Jesus, thank you that we don't just have words and Bibles, but God, we have your word and we have your Bible. God, thank you that we do not have to go out thinking that we're going to be annoying or a bother. And please help us not to lose confidence when we get rejected. Lord, thank you so much that we get to have this opportunity. Give us courage and grace and love for everybody we meet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's go! Yeah, I, I love this episode, really. It was my favorite one to make because I think that that scene right there, it captures what is, is so powerful with radio journalism. You can really go into another world where most people don't have access to or don't understand and then make that world real for people. Absolutely. And I've obviously never been part of or ever observed any sort of mall ministry, as you called it in the clip. And... Uh, have you ever experienced that? Yeah, so the, um, the the sort of hook or the premise of the episode is that I'm returning to this Pentecostal youth rally um, as an atheist that I, I attended as a Christian when I was a teenager. So um, so on the one hand, it's a kind of um, a story about faith and belief. But on the other hand, it's just a story about a, the, a kind of vulnerable and strange time in humans' lives, you know, when you're 17 and um, and this sort of interesting group of people and the organizers of a conference and how they've kind of tried to um, recruit some of these these kids to be Pentecostals. Absolutely. So towards the end of this documentary, which you can, of course, find on our website, terry.ubc.ca, you met with one of the organizers or hosts or MCs, as they call it, and you talked to him about the production side of the festival. Let's go to that. Yeah, well, the idea is that anyone can come to it, right? And we're gonna preach a gospel that is, you know, accessible to anyone. But we are Pentecostal, and we're not gonna hold that back. We're not gonna apologize for it. And Pentecostalism, as it's expressed in in culture and in media and in uh, you know movies, uh, is not is not often a positive depiction. Yeah, you know, you see a movie. Uh, unfortunately, like Borat, where there's a, a, a very Pentecostal scene. Is that like at a mega church, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and so you get a, a certain depiction that isn't necessarily accurate of a venue like this. I mean, you come here and you hang out and you hear the gospel and you have kids that get saved and kids that you know have a, a, a radical and real and rational experience with, with Jesus. It's a weird experience for me, right? Because I, I kind of imagined I was going to like the history maker I went to 10 years ago and so it's like have you ever gone back to your elementary school I was homeschooled oh okay never mind <laughs> so, so you no, go back no, to I didn't yeah I do every time I visit I yeah <laughs> and my high school actually but there's a weird feeling where you it still kind of holds like an importance to you and you imagine it in the proportion that when you were there the first time and then you show up and everything's smaller and all the people are so small and yeah. it's kind of strange to realize that you've changed so much in that time well with a little bit of life experience you kind of come back to it and it's like going to oz and seeing behind the curtain yeah and you see that it's a you know a machine or whatever
Well, that's actually going to do it for today's episode of The Terry Project on CITR 101.9 FM. We're going to hand the torch over to Justin Ritchie and the Extra Environmentalist. Justin's in the studio. It's like the first time... We have ever met. (laughs) Live in the studio. Live in the studio for a real, like, torch handoff moment. So just a quick reminder, that episode was Sam Goes to History Maker, which you can find on iTunes and terry.ubc.ca. We are going to sign off here on CITR 101.9 FM, play a couple of PSAs, and come back with the extra environmentalists. See you. Kashka, the new project from Kat Burns of Forest City Lovers, presents her brand new album, Bound. Bound is available on iTunes and Bandcamp now. Visit kashkamusic.com to watch videos 